When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing for Wednesday, July 7, 2021. I'm Samuel Burke, joined by my co-host Jack Farley and Daily Briefing fan favorite Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Darius, we just want to give you a little preview of what we're going to be putting to you today. Starting with those Fed notes that are out, they see progress toward tapering, which is why it's confounding for some that you see 10-year U.S. Treasuries dipping below 1.3% today. Maybe not confounding for you, Darius. Jack, what's on your radar? Well, as you say, 10-year below 1.30, that's a five-year low, excuse me, a five-month low, and that is lifting gold higher for the fifth day in a row, at the same time dragging oil down with Western Texas Intermediate crude trading below $72. Samuel? Jack, as much as you're a gold man, you know that I'm a tech man. I was thrilled to see my Amazon stock hit an all-time high at one point today. And then equally as disappointed when we saw the Chinese tech stocks do exactly the opposite. More news coming out of China. It looks like they're going to close a loophole that allowed Chinese tech companies to IPO overseas. Darius has some great context for us to put this all into perspective. So let's get right to that big story, Darius. Here, on the one hand, you have a lot of factors that would make you think that bonds would be doing something very different. You've got the Fed, as we just mentioned, seeing progress toward tapering. You've got expectations of inflation, not by all, but by many. And then, of course, you expect interest rates going up at some point. So in your view, why are the yields moving the way that they're moving? Yeah, thank you, Samuel. It's great to be back. Thanks, everyone, for, uh, for joining. Um, the number one driver, from my perspective, of this bond yield move is the decay in the terminal Fed funds rate for what this business cycle is likely to produce. Um, so if you look at something like five-year, five-year forward overnight index swap spreads, uh, they've declined 90 basis points since the end of March from 2.4 to 1.5 percent. Um, and my interpretation of that, because I think there's a lot of different interpretations, uh, my primary interpretation of that is that the bond market and, and, and really credit investors broadly have really shifted to understanding uh, that this Federal Reserve is unlikely to be as willing of a participant in this sort of what I would consider to be an inevitable march towards MMT. And what I mean by that is that the Federal Reserve is unlikely to let inflation get out of hand on a realized basis for an extended period of time. And more importantly, they're unlikely to allow inflation expectations that have been priced uh, into the long end of, of, of sovereign rate curves, both in the U.S. and broadly, to really seep into the U.S., into the real economy. So, um, you know, I think you just have a, a much tighter Fed on an expectations basis on a three to five year forward basis. And that to me is, is really why you're seeing uh, the decline in inflation premiums in, in sovereign yield curves. Yeah, so that five year, five year is what the market is pricing. The five year yield will be in five years, a yeah. little bit complex. That's why we like having you here, Darius. My question is, why is that the case? What has the Federal Reserve done that signals to investors that it is taking inflation more seriously perhaps than they were before? Is it just the dot plot? Was it some sort of incantation that uh, Jerome Powell gave? 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of the dot plot and also uh, Powell's unwillingness to sort of provide uh, very dovish commentary around that dot plot hawkish revision. I think it was very purposeful. I think what they've done is they've, they've effectively hiked interest rates without actually hiking interest rates. And this is how far down this sort of rabbit hole, this, this dangerous path of, of never-ending, ever-increasing uh, fiscal and monetary largesse that we're on. They can hike interest rates and crater inflation expectations and break down long-term inflation expectations with just a, a change of a dot plot or, or some uh, commentary. So that, I think that's where we are, and that's how wired markets are uh, to monetary policy and, and the changes therein. I'm just curious, you've laid out very clearly your thoughts about deflation while everybody's talking about inflation right here on the Daily Briefing. <laughs> Sounded like an idiot back a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to lay that out again. And I just want to know how today's Fed notes, again, progress toward tapering and what you see with these 10-year U.S. Treasury yields. Does that affect your thinking about deflation in any way whatsoever? Yeah, so, so with 42 Macro, we started pivoting our portfolio construction at the margin towards what we call deflation back at the beginning of May. Um, not outright deflation. I feel like I have to constantly remind investors or viewers of this, but what we mean by deflation is, is a state where the economy is decelerating on growth and inflation simultaneously. Historically, that's obviously augured for defensive posture in equity and credit markets, but it's also augured for outsized excess returns uh, in the long end of sovereign yield curve. So from my perspective, everything is going according to plan if you consider the fact that inflation is likely peaked uh, in the month of May and growth is likely peaked in the month of April. Now, we're not talking about slowing uh, precipitously from those levels, but certainly a persistent deceleration into very elevated er uh, growth and earnings expectations that could really catalyze a sense of disappointment for an extended period of time. And the problem with that, as it relates to risk assets, or if you're, sh if you're short bonds here, um, the big problem with that is that, you know, <laughs> Everyone's got to get rechange their positioning, right? Like we, everyone was levered long reflation going back a month ago, certainly in the commodity space, and two months ago in the equity space, and now you're just seeing that unwind. I got a couple of stats for you. You look at uh, the median, the S and P 500 constituent. It's actually down 0.2 percent since the the March the the the, the May 7th peak in the S and P 500, whereas the S and P 500 itself is up 3 percent. So that's that's a telling sign in terms of the lack of breadth. But then even when you look at the commodities market. The CRB index peaked on June 11th. Um, oil's up 1.5% from then. But if you look at ag, it's down 6.5. Base metals are down 3.2. And uh, precious metals are down 4.6. So you're seeing a real narrowness of breadth that tends to be uh, a real feature of topping processes in and around asset markets. Darius, do you think that the baton will fully be passed from the reflationary names, the small cap miners, the home builders, and the like, to the large cap big tech stocks like you know, NVIDIA, one thinks of, but also, you know, the mainstream FANG names. Uh, Samuel earlier alluded that Amazon was up something like four and a half percent yesterday, which for a huge cap stock is just tremendous. Um, do you think that you will see that leadership continue to consolidate in the FANG names, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and the like? Yeah, that's a very appropriate market response to, again, going into this deflation macro regime uh, in the second half of the year that we have in our model starting in August. Um, so, yes, I, I do agree. And, and to be fair to the market participants that have, that have you know, already taken advantage of that, it's already it started three or four weeks ago. You know, we started actually calling that out in terms of sector and style factor dispersion um, is really starting to creep towards defensive. And, and up until this, this most recent week, it hadn't really gotten fully defensive. It was defensive from the perspective of, OK, let me go buy uh, least shorted debt 
uh, most uh, least shorted growth names, tech names, work from home names, but you didn't quite see the composition at the, the lower quantiles of, of, of dispersion that would indicate the market was ready for a risk off moment, but you're now actually starting to see that this week. Darius, I've got a question for you, which I'm going to read for you from your morning note today from 42 Macro. You had a very interesting Those quote. Those things are mouthful. <laughs> All told, the stock market does not crash when everyone is positioned for a crash. It crashes when hedge fund consensus is forced by fundamental catalysts and or systemic risk management rules to cover high. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah, so the, so the what the, that note though that particular uh, note is in context in relation to uh, what we've been tracking, and this is what other investors, particularly in the vol space, have been highlighting on Twitter, is that you just have a, a massive amount of implied vol premium to the put side across not only the U.S. equity indices but a lot of the different sectors and style factors in the indices. A lot of people are really nervous about a potential Fed taper here in this month of July, and certainly by Jackson Hole. So you have a lot of investors putting on protection and getting nervous about the reflation trade into that. Well, the problem with that is when everyone has the same hedge, it typically tends not to work. And so what's likely to happen, or at least in my opinion, I think what's more likely to happen um, is that you see a decay of those hedges. Dealers have to buy back their, their short gamma exposure. And then ultimately, as we go through earnings season, you get your final last gasp higher in a lot of these reflation plays and a lot of the uh, mega cap tech names. I, I think you could see a broadening of, 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 of breadth into earnings season. But beyond that, after people are forced again by those catalysts and potentially forced by obviously the price action to take off those hedges, that's when the bottom can, in my opinion, could and should drop out of the, the equity market. And if it happens sooner, obviously, we're going we're gonna to have to adjust. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I know that Jack has a soundbite that he wants to play, but just to close up one part of inflation before he gets there, I'm very focused on labor inflation, wage inflation. So I just want to know where you see that in the context of what you've been talking about in terms of deflation. Yeah, so you, so this, if you think about the labor market, I, I try to parse it into three different categories: uh, employment growth or employment or the lack of employment growth, uh, wages, and hours worked. Uh, wages are obviously accelerating and making new highs as a function of the lack of supply and the and the, and the near record demand to pick your indicator. Um, employment it is obviously improving on a, on a lag or improving on a lag, but it's certainly not improving at a pace that I would consider or most invest or what we just learned at two p.m. today that the Fed would consider. Uh, is substantial further progress in the labor market. In fact, I think one of the key telling um, statistics from last week's jobs report is the fact that unemployment actually ticked up if you look at the household survey. So we're clearly not out of the woods yet. I think we all want the pandemic to be over. We want to get back to normal, but the reality is we're just not quite there yet, which again, is giving me confidence to say that I think uh, ultimately Goldilocks can persist over at least over the next few weeks. But beyond that, I, I don't think that's uh, that's likely. Final jobs, sorry. What, uh, just really quickly, uh, when you think about uh, average hourly earnings, actually moving in the wrong direction, both for blue collar work and white collar work. And that to me was a pretty telling statistic if you look at the, the, the composition of the report, that again, the labor market is not necessarily ready uh, for the Fed to, to, to taper. Sorry about that. Uh, and that's really interesting you say that, Darius. I remember in March and April of 2020, 
the only positive statistic in the labor market was a rise in hourly wages. Of course, that was because the lowest paid workers were the ones who were losing their jobs, you know, mo most vulnerable to their losers. So I wonder if, you know, you say it's a bad statistic that, that wages are going down, if that uh, actually represents people going back to work, perhaps. Yeah, it certainly does. But again, the labor market is extremely robust and tight in the non-COVID affected areas, what I would consider to be, as I parse it from, you know, white collar industries relative to blue collar industries. Um, it's very tight. And so you're seeing wage inflation um, at that, uh, in that, in that, accelerating wage inflation in that cohort as well. But you're also obviously seeing it in the, in the blue collar workers in the, in the most affected industries. And that's obviously the function of the tight supply and demand, but also just a function of the economy is growing extremely fast at the current juncture. You have estimates between 10 and 12% for the second quarter GDP. Obviously we're looking at it somewhere close to, you know, four five, six for the third quarter. This, this is a, re, a perfectly normal reaction function um, for the labor market. Just from a levels perspective, however, we just don't think we've achieved substantial further, substantial further progress in terms of you know putting a Fed tapering event on the calendar for the end of this month. Going back to the bond market, Darius, there's there's a clip I want to play, which is from an interview uh, that we did with Alfonso Pecatiello, who's a, a macro investor focused on the bond market. And he is defying the, uh, the, the consensus among bond investors that inflation is going to run red hot. Uh, he, he actually agrees with the Federal Reserve that it, it will prove transitory. And he has some interesting reasons why. So let's take a look at the clip. So when a crisis hit or when the economy is slowing down, as we discussed before, long-term forward nominal growth is priced down and therefore nominal yields tend to drop. I also tend to think that there are structurally deflationary forces out there that are mostly demographics. We have seen the chart on labor supply before, stagnant productivity, over leverage, misallocation of capital, technology, so on and so forth. Those forces are very, very, very strong. And short-term sugar rush-driven credit impulse can only cyclically give us the feeling for a few quarters that we are living in regime change. There is no regime change. So Darius, that interview, which is available for all Real Vision Essential members on the Essential tier, he's basically saying that we've had a, a sugar rush in credit creation over the past year, but that going forward, that sugar rush will be much less important than the deflationary forces of the, on the horizon, like you know, allocation of capital, like te technological improvement. Um, what do you make of the, the rolling over of the credit impulse. Can you describe what that means? Yeah, the credit impulse is just simply the change in, in, in credit in the economy. Uh, so people like to do it on a credit to GDP ratio. I myself like to look at the three year Z score of private non financial sector credit growth. Um, that's a mouthful for TV. Uh, but anyway, so when you look at obviously the US economy, uh, but most economies in the world, uh, we track, uh, we, we build models for uh, every OECD and, and, and major emerging market economy. and they're all on the right side of the chart, and, and I'll send you guys the chart or I'll post it to Twitter. Uh, what I mean by that is that credit growth has been massively accelerated all throughout uh, the, 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 the developed and emerging market world, and you're seeing that response. And so the reality is to get to perpetuate an economic cycle from here, you got to do something else. You know, there's naturally going to be a slowdown off of that sugar rush um, unless you bring forth more fiscal easing more monetary easing. And obviously, where we are with most inflation sign curves globally, it's very unlikely to be the case in this period that we're highlighting, i.e. the second half of 2021. So we're going to have to cool off as a function of that. Again, I'm not concerned about you know cooling off towards a recession or slowing down to something that's 
below trend from a growth perspective. But I do think it's so in terms of you know characterizing that with the positioning associated with everyone being maxed on inflation as recently as three to four weeks ago to having to put on a defensive portfolio account for that. I think that's certainly why you're seeing bonds rally so sharply, why you're seeing gold back from the dead, and obviously why you're seeing the crowding in the uh, defensive exposures within the equity market. Darius, uh, I, I want to get to gold in a second, but really quickly, um, why is it that, to tell us, can you explain to us why it is the rate of change that is important? Because credit creation is extremely high right now, but it is so high that the only way to sustain growth is to go even higher. So yeah. we, are, we are likely doomed to go you know, slightly lower. Can you explain why that's important in rate of change terms? Yeah, so, so one, calculus is a secret to the universe. Let's not, let's all, let's start every conversation and in every conversation with that. Um, secondarily, it's the market's function on rate of change. It's the second derivative. It's the gamma that really impacts financial markets and forces positioning and, 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 and exposures to change hands. Uh, among investors. Price is set at the margin, and the margin is dictated by what's happening at the margin in the economy. And so the rate of change is what got us here from the lows of last spring to the highs of this spring in the inflation trades and bond yields. And the rate of change is what's going to get us from these highs in bond yields, or from those highs in bond yields and inflation exposures to you know some some higher low um, at some point in the, in the back half of the year. Again, it's not necessarily saying, oh, we're at the beginning of this massive secular bear market or Bonds or the ten-year Treasury yield is going to go back to zero point five percent. I don't think I don't really see the need to make that call because, the, quite frankly, you're going to make money no matter where you wind up. It's really about the timing and the sequence uh, of putting the trades on and exiting the trades. And Darius, how does gold fit within that regime? Because I know you said gold has been uh, roared back to life, and you're absolutely right. I think think it's up for the sixth straight day in a row. That, yeah. of course, has happened as real yields have have continued to sink. Can you explain how you're thinking about gold and why does gold uh, trade so inversely with real rates? Why is that correlation so perfect? Yeah, so, so I mean, obviously gold's up six days in a row, but in this week, uh, week to date in particular, we've seen what we call a classic deflation move from a market regime perspective. Um, and what I mean by that is, is it's gold has historically been one of the best performing assets when the market regime is, is, is pricing in deflation from a bottom up perspective. Uh, you're seeing gold actually rise in the face of a rising dollar. So that is a clean cut, uh, clean, sorry, clean cut deflation signal. And obviously you're seeing a, a widening of the dispersion between defensive equity sectors and style factors and, and cyclical equity sectors and style factors. So, and, and obviously new lows and bond yields. So the market is really giving you a preview of what this looks like. But the, again, I, I've been talking about this for almost two months now <laughs> in terms of, you know, in, in, in allocating our portfolio construction towards deflation at the margin. This is exactly what we would expect to right around this time of year. Again, I don't know that we're quite ready for that pivot yet. I certainly think we could survive in Goldilocks between now and, and I guess the, the early to mid-August. But again, if we if, if, if the transition comes sooner and we have a myriad of quantitative signals that'll get us to that transition, um, if it comes sooner, we'll have to just put it on and because that probably means uh, we're going to experience a little bit more pain in, in risk asset terms in the back half of the year. And, and, and Darius, uh, Jack mentioned at the top of the show the price action with oil. I'm fascinated by what's happening with the United Arab Emirates, specifically Abu Dhabi, breaking with their Gulf partners. And essentially, the word that we're getting out of there is they see this as a great opportunity. Demand is high. Uh, they say that they think there will continue to be demand, but they say they really want to cash in, essentially, that they want to diversify their economy into other types of energy. 
and other, other revenue streams outside of energy. So obviously, in some bigger picture, we can't say just how big that picture is, but in some longer term, they see some type of, of doubt there. They think this is the time to, to cash out. How does that fit into your bigger picture view of oil? Yeah, no, that I think that's a really smart investment, long-term capital allocation strategy for Abu Dhabi. Um, that's about as smart as I looked dumb. My chuckle of the week, everyone go back and check this, check me on Twitter with this, uh, is I think at the morning, on Monday morning, I tweeted at four o'clock in the morning, oil is up 2%. I'm starting to get amenable to the $90 crude oil case. And obviously it's done nothing but go nice straight down since then. So everybody go get a laugh out of that. But certainly, yeah, I, I do think the long-term uh, bull case for oil is, is positive. I mean, again, we just went through a, a, at least a seven-year cycle um, since going back to 2014 of limited capital investment in what had very clearly had become the world's marginal source of energy uh, uh, supply. Um, and obviously with the, the debacle that we continue to see in OPEC, it's very unlikely we see a massive uh, increase in supply soon. But guess what? The rest of the world is still getting vaccinated. We're still reopening the economy. You know, you're still going to have incremental energy man at the margins. So uh, I don't see a scenario where oil goes down a tremendous amount. I think the commod the pain in the commodity space, the pure inflation place, uh, is likely to be concentrated in other commodities. Um, not to say that oil is going to go up in a deflation market regime, but certainly if you're if you're a commodity manager, if you if you want to you know keep your toe in the water there because you believe in the secular inflation story, I think it, it really pays to allocate uh, assets incrementally to crude oil. And that's why I'm so fascinated by this story, because you have so many analysts saying, look, the demand was all from the developing world. A lot of those places are still in lockdown. I'm thinking of places like South Africa and the Philippines. And so when they come back online, there's going to be even more demand. But clearly, Abu Dhabi is taking a, a different view. I want to go east from Abu Dhabi, even farther east to China. Uh, I talked about my investments in some of those Chinese stocks, tech stocks, as a way to diversify my portfolio. Now, when you see the movement with DD downward, Tencent downward, pretty much not all. Uh, Alibaba was okay today, but across the board, or almost across the board, I should say, you saw a, a lot of issues. As more and more, we had a clear picture of what's upset the, the Chinese officials, and it's this loophole that's allowed them to do listings in the United States and elsewhere. Put this into perspective for us. You, you have a, a pretty strong view about this and what this is telling us about what's to come for China and the rest of the world. Yeah, no, Sam, brilliant question. I think this is one of the more, if you're talking, if you're a long-term investor, because forget, I spend most of my time thinking about how to help investors risk manage the next three to nine months. Um, you know, I, I views longer term, but I, I, the real action is, is in the one to three quarter window. If you're a long-term investor and you're worried about the one to three year window and potentially well beyond that, I think this is the biggest story here. Uh, because we're seeing your, your sort of, China Fang type exposures severely decoupled from our domestic U.S. Nasdaq Fang exposures, really for the first time since 2015. Um, if you look at it on a month-on-month -month basis, uh, one uh, ETF you can track is KWeb to sort of see uh, what those types of names are, are doing, and they're down 10% month over month in the same month where the Nasdaq's up seven and a half percent, like a 1,700 basis point plus delta in one month. For Matt, one very large exposures that everybody owns. Um, so that that to me is telling you that the world is really having this tectonic shift, in my opinion. And and going back to uh, Graham Allison's book, Destined for War, required reading if you care about China, uh, if you if you care about geopolitics at all. Um, you know, I think that the, it's very unlikely, in my opinion, 
that because of the co-integration of our economies that we had for a kinetic war like many of the uh, other rising and rising power sort of uh, dominant power um, combos of, of experience throughout time. I do, however, believe that we could be destined for a non-kinetic war on information transfer, on supply chains, on the digital currencies, on the, the entire global euro dollar system. I, I think you know some brilliant investors like Jeff Snyder have thoughts on this. Uh, the world could be splintering east versus west. And this is not something that, in my opinion, is in, truly investable in terms of putting capital today at work. At, uh, in, you know, here's a dollar, do this with a dollar today. However, I do think it's something that is very likely to drive um, you know, investment allocations over a very long period of time. Because again, you're, you're creating two poles in the world. China dominated, US dominated. We're obviously on the decay. They're obviously on the come up. But the reality is that friction associated with those processes um, will have a tremendous amount of impact on economies, on investments going forward, and obviously on, on geopolitics and, and how those uh, evolve globally. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And when you talk about the, that decoupling, of course, you think of the decoupling of the internet as a whole into the Chinese internet and possibly the rest of the world's internet. Jack, I want to get to user questions, but I know you have one thing to add on this. Oh, well, I just wanted to ask Darius. Um, I'm looking at a, the corporate structure of Didi now. And uh, I'm surprised to learn that the actual name of the company is not Didi. It's Beijing Xiaoju Science and Technology Company. So this company has about uh, 15 or so variable interest entities, basically shell corporations where you know various assets and liabilities are, are uh, scattered throughout the corporate structure. Uh, and this is quite normal for Chinese companies. You know, you see it in American companies, but I think China takes it to the next level. My question for you, Darius, is... To what degree do you think that this will deter American investors? Sure, they don't, they're not in love with the lack of transparency and they say, hey, what, what do I really own if I own a depository receipt? But do you think that the, the allure of, of Chinese companies and being exposed to this huge growth market is simply too much for foreign investors to, to be deterred? Yeah, to some degree, I think, I mean, again, I think you can, you sort of, you can ask the same question in my opinion uh, with respect to our own digital economy exposures, right? Like pretty much everybody, I'm in my mid thirties, everybody in my age and below, um, if you have a seat on the buy side or if you've been working in this industry, you've been trained to buy every dip in, you know, mega cap digital economy exposures, um, China included. Um, and I certainly think, again, I think a decoupling like this, and this is something that I always have believed as an investor, is that uh, market regime phase transitions, whether they be cyclical, i.e. something you need to risk manage for one or three quarters, whether they be secular, something you might have to risk manage um, from an orientation perspective over the next 10 to 20 years. Those transitions almost always occur with a massive, you know, multi-standard deviation move relative to the prior trade. Um, you know, you think about long-term capital management, the Russian default, you think about Lehman Brothers, you know, you think about all these kinds of events that tend to, you know, catalyze big secular changes. And when you go back and you study the history books, you go back and rewind the tape, and you say, oh, that was the thing, right? That was the thing. Well, it's very likely, or actually, I, I'm not smart enough to say that comment. However, it is a possibility that the thing was Didi, right? This crackdown, this, this broadening crackdown 
on on real what I would consider to be a very uh, some a muted form of capital outflows from the Chinese economy um, is 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 very real, and it can actually start to change investor sentiment about thinking about these exposures in the same light as we do with our our mega cap fame type names. So. Uh, this is going to be a developing story for years. I don't think we need to find every answer and every conclusion today. But I certainly think if, if you're putting a dollar to capital work for the next three to five years, I just as soon bring that dollar home here to the U.S. rather than say, OK, there's more growth in, a, in, a, in a China, in a China it, exposure. And it just shows you if there's really one of the key things I've learned in covering markets for 10 years is that the Chinese are playing the long game. Because yeah. if you looked at what just happened, such a big IPO in the United States with Didi, a Chinese tech company, you would think that Beijing would be celebrating and just the opposite. They're playing the long game and thinking about what they do with that data, where they want these IPOs to be. And mm -hmm. they're really thinking 10 steps ahead of everybody else and not thinking about short term profits or revenue inflows. I want to start putting viewer questions to you, Darius. We have plenty of them. Uh, first from Prius Omega. Darius, what do you make of the part of me? Uh, from Ayush? What do you think of a, a stronger dollar would mean for energy markets? <laughs> be really bad. I mean, <laughs> obviously, the dollars had a real tough time breaking down below uh, 1100 on the BBDX, the Bloomberg dollar index, breaking down below 90 on the DXY. So um, that's really taken a lot of the upside wind out of the sales across the commodity markets, across energy exposures. If the dollar had a material strengthening from here, as it tends to do in deflation macro regimes and market regimes, um, those are two separate things. Um, we're trying to you know, allocate according to the market regime. If the dollar does what it has historically done in that regime, energy is going to go down and potentially down by a lot. So we have another question here. Uh, Ralph says, Darius, did we really have a bunch of credit creation? Banks are not loaning out much and households are paying, paying down debt. Yeah, mo most credit creation in the, in the U.S. economy uh, is not on bank balance sheet. Um, over 50% of credit is, is created through shadow bank and non-bank entities in the U.S. So that's that's the first point. We're obviously growing 12% in GDP terms. So there is credit being created. Trust me. Uh, you know, um, and then you know we look at economy like Europe, it's around 50% as well. Economy like China, about 80, 85% of, of, of private non-financial debt sector debt is on bank balance sheet. So it is appropriate to track credit metrics in that kind of economy. But certainly in our economy, I think you're only getting really half, if not less than half of the picture. We've got a question from the great Prius Omega who asked, Darius, what do you make of the reverse repo shenanigans that have been going on? Why is it happening and can we expect it to continue? I'll caveat this by saying I don't track that stuff very closely. And the reason I don't track it closely is because I don't have the data that you need to track it very closely. I don't have access to the time series. I don't work at a major sell side desk. I'm not a market maker. Um, so it's it's very dangerous to try to track this stuff if you don't have the time series. I think there's a lot of investors who do a good job of explaining everything, like Bart Wang or, or, or Jim Carson. So it is important to track, but certainly don't don't go out there trying to pretend like you can piece together how the U.S. and global financial system can work based on a few tweets or a few data points, because trust me, it's a lot more complicated than that. To answer the question, what do I think about uh, the reverse repo thing in terms of you know my, my my interpretation of it is obviously we've basically destroyed the interbank lending market um you know for a variety of reasons to keep the, the credit creation game going and really the asset price appreciation game going which it drives the credit creation of private equity and again all other non-bank uh, financiers um so i think the reverse repo is just a function of okay there's higher yields here i don't really know where else to put the work yet it's not really clear what the the regime we're in from a longer term perspective right did we transition to a new inflationary regime? 
or are we still back in the same aubergine where money velocity and the declining labor force participation rate and our you know our poor demographics are really still disinflationary? You know, by the way, uh, the, the productivity growth that we've all experienced. I'm talking. I don't even know. <laughs> Sam, you're in London. Uh, Jack, you're in New York. I'm in upstate New York. Like this is pretty productive. You know, we're not on a train going to have this conversation. So that's disinflationary as well. So I think there's going to be a push pull um, about this inflation versus deflation or disinflation debate over the next three to six months. And in, in my opinion, it's going to intensify to the extent our models, again, which I, we think we have some of the most accurate models on Wall Street in terms of projecting growth and inflation. If our models are correct and inflation decelerates 100 basis points over the next 12 months, I think that debate's going to be really intense. And, and certainly something investors can take advantage of in, in asset markets. Final question for you, Darius, uh, sorry, Samuel, is that next Wednesday, we can expect the consumer price index heavily watched. Last month, it came in at 0.7% month over month, 5.0% uh, year over year. What are you eyeing for that next week's number? Yeah, so we have it taken down uh, by 10 basis points. Um, that forecast has gone up in, in, recent, uh, in recent days. Um, so we run agent-based nowcast models for our inflation models for each country and, and a few dynamics that have really contributed to the uptick in the, in the forecast. We still have it inflecting lower, but it's, it's come up. You've obviously seen ISM prices pay tick up, ISM services prices take down, but not as much as the model was initially forecasting. And then obviously on a year-over-year -year rate of change basis, most commodities and FX-adjusted terms are still actually accelerating in the month of June. So you have, you know, you have another in terms of all the stuff driving inflation from a bottom up perspective, like medical care, transportation goods, all that stuff should roll over with the exception of owner's equivalent rent. So you're going to have a very mixed uh, internals in terms of next uh, in terms of um, next Wednesday's inflation print. I think if this thing misses to the upside, I think all bets are off in terms of Goldilocks. Uh, I think you're really going to start to catalyze the market regime transition uh, uh, to, to deflation. And that means you've got to put on that defensive exposure, get out of a lot of the cyclicality that a lot of investors have made money with this year. Wait, sorry, it, that because I, I know we got to end the show, but you said something that did not make sense to me. If we miss to the upside, if inflation is higher than you think, yeah. then you think that will be bad for cyclicals for the oils. Yeah, because all, all you're going to do, remember that that preview we got on the Wednesday through Thursday and Friday around the June FOMC? Yeah. Imagine having that for like three or four months. Okay, okay. <laughs> because you're pulling forth the expectation and the, and the severity of tapering um, if inflation really starts to look like it's less than transitory. Uh, that, to me, is the real big catalyst, because, again, the Federal Reserve, by its dot plot revision, is signaling that it's not ready to allow inflation to get out of hand. It's not ready to be proactive about transitioning to MMT. It's much more aligned with the Federal Reserve of old. That's you know you know going to be a little bit more vigilant on inflation, less than it has been, but obviously certainly less than what investors are anticipating at the highs of you know commodity prices on, on June 11th. Well, there is supply and demand are at the foundation of everything that we talk about, and there's been a lot of demand for you from the daily briefing audience. So we're glad that you're supplying us with all this great context and Thank perspective. You. Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro, my co-host Jack Farley. Look forward to seeing more of you guys on realvision.com and the Real Vision app. We'll see you on tomorrow's Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.